0: Welcome to the Workplace Evolution Podcast, in association with Management Today and Michael Page, part of the Page Group. Yes, this is the Workplace Evolution Podcast with Michael Costello, and you are about to embark on a leadership masterclass with one of, if not the most influential thinkers on leadership of our era, Mr. Jim Collins, who rarely gives an interview and is releasing Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0. This answers the big question, how do you turn your business into an enduring great company? Reed Hastings at Netflix stated that this book had more influence on his leadership than any other person or any other book. Jim and I explored what leaders do to grow their companies and drew on 30 years Yes, 30 years of research on what leadership styles and behaviors make the difference in these challenging times. One minute we're discussing challenges for President Joe Biden, the next we're exploring Jim's time with Steve Jobs. Yes we explore IBM, Xerox, Gillette and Apple, but what also struck me was Jim's incredible appetite for history and ability to make the behaviors of George Washington, Churchill kennedy relevant to today's business challenges you'll notice jim takes any chance he can to credit other authors and those who have helped him along the way in his career so they're included in the podcast notes which is why we start with an emotional and heartfelt discussion about his mentor and co-author bill lazier a man who encouraged a life of curiosity and enjoyed butter on his waffles so enjoy the podcast
1: I increasingly sort of look at life as uh, about really the narrative that's around people and people that have intersected to really uh, affect and, uh, and shape my life. And one of the biggest was Bill Izier. And in, by the time I sort of entered my early 20s, I was this very energetic propulsion machine, uh, and, but without really kind of a clear guidance uh, mechanism, without a real clear sense as to where all this propulsion would go. And, and I was really lucky. I think about luck, who luck, right? I had this incredible stroke of luck in my life and it went like this. So I'm a second year student in the graduate program at the Stanford uh, graduate school of business. I'd wanted to take this course that was so popular of a course that I didn't make it in. And so I, the, 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 lottery machine kind of assigned me to a different section The lottery system of the course allocation mechanism put me in a different section and there was a first time professor in there that nobody knew and his name was Bill Azier. Had that not happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, Good to great wouldn't exist. Built to last wouldn't exist. Great by choice wouldn't exist. 25 years, 30 years of research on what makes great companies tick wouldn't exist. Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0 wouldn't exist. Everything I've done would not have happened and my values would be different. And he helped me to see that maybe a life of curiosity, of questions, of writing, of teaching would have, uh, uh, would be a great path for me. And then when I was 30, the, uh, the there was a star professor who had a, a personal uh, event happen in his life, a tragedy, and had to not teach a class on entrepreneurship and small business. And all of a sudden, the school had this opening like right before the, the school year was going to start, shortly before, anyways, and they didn't have somebody to take this to take over this section. And Bill said, went to the deans and said, why don't you let Jim Jim do it, Jim Collins do it? And I'll take responsibility if, if he messes up. And and he went totally to bat for me to give me this opportunity. And 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 it was one of these things where like he put him he put his own reputation at risk to give me this shot, this one shot. And then he said to me, he said, you know, if you, if you basically really have a, a great season, I always have this image of going into Yankee Stadium, and just because all the other pitchers didn't make it in on the bus, and somebody says, go out there and throw. And then Bill says to me, but if you throw a really good game, you'll get to throw again. And I got to throw in the Stanford Business School for the for the next seven years I spent there doing that. And that's what launched my entire uh, career of research and writing and thinking and so forth. Everything changed.
0: He had a great love of life, it sounds. He says,
1: never confuse a great life with a long life. Uh, he had a quintuple bypass the day after we turned in the manuscript. Oh, jeez. And um, and a few months later, we were having one of our, what we call our waffle fests. And uh, Bill had had this quintuple bypass. And he gets his waffle and he puts all this butter and syrup on this waffle. And I'm like, Bill, 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 what are you doing? And Bill just kept pouring the syrup and putting on the butter. And then he said this marvelous thing to me. He said, when I was being wheeled into the operating room, I realized that I'd already had a really great life. And if, and if I didn't come out of the operating room, if I didn't make it through this, to really know going into that operating room, like it's been a great life. It is no tragedy. Uh, and he said, you know, so I just decided everything from here is just even more of a bonus upon a great life. So I'm having the butter on my waffles. I'm having the butter on my waffles because I don't confuse. Uh, I don't mistake a great life and a short life. They're, they're different. And life is just short.
0: Uh, in the beyond entrepreneurship, you define leadership as the art of getting people to want to do what must be done. Mm-hmm. which leads really nicely to the first leadership style uh, decisiveness that I'd like to explore with you. And you describe in the book the concept of constructive confrontation mm-hmm. to inform leadership decisions. Yeah. So what is this process of constructive confrontation? And if we focus on your new president for a moment, Joe Biden, how might he use it to start unifying a country that appears to be divided
1: right now? So let's, let's share what we, what we learned from our research. So I like to think of it as a, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase that came up, for example, in the days of Intel, uh, Andy Grove called it a constructive confrontation, but you could call it, I like to think of it as disagree and commit, right? It's another way of phrasing it. But essentially, if you look at the pattern of decision-making and, and you're looking at, uh, uh, how they made these really big decisions that allowed their companies to make a leap from good to great, they were they were decisions that were preceded by tremendous amounts of argument, debate, dialogue, and disagreement. And I remember in the good to great research, people, people I'd say, well, describe what the executive team meetings were like. Chaos, people throwing <laughs> binders against the wall, uh, you know, people pounding and you know, veins popping out and and, and and I remember uh there was a really critical uh decision in the early in the development of Gillette. And they had to decide how they were gonna deal with the threat of cheaper razors. This was way back when in when Coleman Mockler was chief executive, the classic level five. Yep. And what he did was he allowed he had this sort of the steel camp, which was the high-end razors, and the plastic camp, which was basically we should just do inexpensive commodity razors. And basically, what he did was very similar to what Chris Bonington did when they was describing that decision about which route on Everest to take. And for those who haven't heard that podcast, go listen to it. It's wonderful. (laughs) And and what he you know he talks about this idea that you let the opposing points of view argue it out, disagree. I disagree with that. We should go plastic. I disagree with that. We should go steel. I disagree with where you think the market's going. What's your evidence? What are your facts? Right dialogue debate disagreement dialogue debate disagreement dialogue debate disagreement and that you as a member of a level 5 team are obligated to, to disagree up until a point then there's a point not necessarily where everybody agrees in fact almost every big decision that we studied in the history of great companies was taken where there was still disagreement in the air then there's the point where your job as an executive is not to get consensus or agreement, it is to make a great decision to see what must be done. Then once in a true level five culture, there's a basic rule. Once we've made a decision, and in companies it's often an executive decision, we will unify behind that decision And your disagreements go now behind you. Even if you disagreed with the decision before it was made, you have two choices. One is to unify fully to make the decision work. Or two, to say, I can't abide and I need to get off the bus. But what you cannot do is to go out afterwards and say, well, that's the decision we made, but I disagree with it. And so this notion of dialogue, debate, disagreement, and to try to get the right answer, the best answer, a good answer, followed by unification to execute. This is what we found is the way that our best leaders made their decisions. So you want to have lots of disagreement and debate all the time. Study the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's fascinating. Uh, it's 13 Days, Robert Kennedy's book is great on this. Also there, there's this book called the Kennedy Transcripts or Kennedy Tapes, I forget. Anyway, it's basically transcripts of the entire Cuban Missile Crisis. And I had a member of my research team systematically analyze those for Kennedy's questions to statements ratio. And what you find early on is he's asking a lot of questions to elicit debate to find the best answer for a very simple reason. If we get it wrong, the world goes up. It's really interesting that you brought up, Jim, the the conversation with Chris Bonington,
0: because when he said at the end, essentially leadership is manipulative. And that blew my mind in the moment. Would you agree with that, that that you're almost in a sense a puppet master when you're facilitating the, the, the debate and disagreement as a leader?
1: First, you have to get clear on what a good decision is, right? And that's where the dialogue and debate, the purpose of the dialogue and debate at least in our research. So when Coleman Mockler, Coleman Mockler, when he was trying to decide between steel camp and plastic camp for razors, he didn't go into that knowing what the the answer was. He went into the debate trying to figure out what the answer should be. Mm -hmm. And once he made the decision, he was very clear, we're going steel, and the way he reinforced it was to take the champion of the steel camp and put him in charge of the razor division. Very clear decision. The purpose of the debate is not in any way to um, manipulate based on the, the company studies we've done. It's to get clear so that the decision is sound. And then the culture is built over time such that if we have a level five culture, we will unify behind a clear decision so that we can make it successful. Now, that said, there's that line, the art of getting people to want to do what must be done. So the dialogue and debate is to try to get clear on what must be done. The idea of wanting, getting people to want to do it—that could be cultural because you have a level five culture. Everybody just wants the company to succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it could be that different people have different kinds of artistry for how to uh, get people to want to do what must be done. The want part—it's art. Some are orators. Some are really good at moving, you know, people in positions. Some are really good at kind of like Chris Bonington, what I was struck by in that in your podcast was what he did was he listened and let the debate go. And then when it was clear to him that it was time for a decision, when the the group kind of gravitated towards that decision, he agreed with it. Yeah, he was in that. Right, remember that? I agreed with it. And then that was like, okay, we're ready to go. And so his artistry was to listen for the right moment right? That was his artistry. So all of us have different ways of exercising our art of figuring out what needs to be done and getting people to want to do it. Your art may be different than my art. Chris's art may be different than Coleman Mockler's.
0: So back to the latter part of that question, Joe Biden and his
1: art, he's a completely different president to Donald Trump. Uh, Well, politics is... Completely outside my my hedgehog. The one thing that's clear to me in today's time that I would ask any leader uh, in any uh, any really difficult crisis time to embrace, uh, and it's the concept of the Stockdale paradox. And, uh, and 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 let me just briefly share this one because I think it's really relevant to our times of crisis and COVID. Uh, and uh, and I, I really believe that it is a Public service to lead with the Stockdale paradox. So Admiral Jim Stockdale was the highest-ranking military officer in the Hanoi Hilton. He was shot down over North Vietnam in the late 1960s, and he spent seven years in the camp. And I, uh, and those who have read Good to Great will remember the story of I, I spent uh, a few days getting ready for the opportunity to meet Admiral Stockdale. When he was studying Stoic philosophy at the Hoover Institute, and I was teaching over at the Stanford Business School, by reading his book, In Love and War, uh, which is alternating chapters with himself and his wife about his years in the camp. And I started getting depressed while I was reading the book, because what struck me was there was no end date when he was in the camp. They could take him out and torture him at any time, they could put him in leg irons for any amount of time, and he didn't know how long he would be there. He didn't know how difficult it would be. And it's not like you walk into the Hanoi Hilton and they give you a slip that says you'll be released on December 31, 1972. I mean, you have no idea. You may die there. You may never see your family again. You may be there for 30 years. You don't know. And it was the unknowing of how long this will last and how painful it will be that struck me as so oppressive. And I was curious how, if I was depressed just reading about it, how did he, and I knew the end of the story. I knew, I knew the end of the story. And I knew we were gonna have lunch the following week on Stanford campus. And how did he deal with it actually living it and not knowing the end of the story? And that's when Admiral Stockdale said to me, I never capitulated to despair because I never ever wavered in my faith. Not only that I would get out, but I would turn it into the defining event of my life. That in retrospect I would not trade. And then when I asked him, well, who didn't make it out as strong as you? He said, Oh, it was the optimists. I said, I'm confused. And he said, What I mean by the optimists are those who say, We'll be out by Christmas. And Christmas will come and it will go. And then I'll be out, we'll be out by By Easter, and it will come and it will go. And then it would be another Christmas, and they suffered from a broken heart. And this is when Admiral Stockdale taught me the lesson that, that we came to call the Stockdale Paradox. You must never confuse the need on the one hand for unwavering faith that you can and you will prevail in the end with the need, on the other hand, for the discipline to confront the most brutal facts as they actually are today. And that ability to do both, unwavering faith and confront the brutal facts, we will not be out of here by Christmas. This is the Stockdale Paradox. And if I were sitting with any leader dealing with the crises of today, it's it's Stockdale Paradox time. Absolute unwavering faith, but we have to start with what are the brutal facts. We begin with the brutal facts as they actually are while never losing faith. Let me just, if you don't mind, I just want to link this into you and my, one of our favorite people, Winston Churchill. So if you go back and you read Churchill's 4,996 pages, memoirs of the Second World War, which everyone should do, what you find is it's an entire treatise on the Stockdale Paradox in a way. Because notice what Churchill does, right? when, when When, you know, the news from France is very bad. It's, it's May 1940, everything is potentially falling apart. And what is his response? It's not, we're gonna survive. Our aim is victory, right? However long, however hard. But there's no question the unwavering faith is victory no matter what, right? That's one side of the Stockdale Paradox, however long or however hard. But the other side is this, the brutal facts. The news from France is very bad. The brutal facts, you never ring the bells too soon. As Churchill would say, the greatest mistake in public leadership is to hold out false soon to be dashed by events. And there's that wonderful thing. We had the discipline to not ring the bells until Mm Alamein, Right. Because if you if you get people celebrating too early, if you get people saying, oh, it's over, it's behind us. No, there's a long road to go. You don't ring the bells too early.
0: Take me back to Joe Biden then. You
1: know, is he confronting the brutal facts? What I would say is this, that putting front and center that it is a brutal fact that we must deal with the pandemic. It's a brutal fact. It's a disease. It's transmissible. We're all living through it. I think one of the things that is deep in those of us who are American, but I think it's really true, you don't bet against the United States long term. Right? We have a way of navigating through. And I think that's also England's history. Ebbs flows, but it's a bad bet to bet against. And that's where I, I think we, we have very, very deep resilience. I mean, in the end, you know, to me, I think that in any environment, including a great company, our leaders reflect the best of their people. And whether it be england or the united states i go first and foremost to one thing which is incredible belief in our people
0: this is helen sharman britain's first astronaut on the workplace evolution podcast it's the only podcast to give you real space
1: and time to think about the workplace
0: it's interesting we come back to constructive confrontation what you said around um, disagree and commit What is it that the great companies do to ensure
1: action after the discussion, after that open, rich dialogue? Everything begins with having the right people. And those right people, if you're building a level five culture, are people who have a personal humility and the relentless drive to deliver great results. And those are your people who hold really key seats. And their humility allows them to be ambitious for the success of the company more than the success of themselves or just their own career. And this is what a level five culture is about. That's a kind of who that you have. Now, if you have that kind of who, if you have the kind of who that's like I'm arguing to get the best answer to make this company successful, I'm not arguing for my department. I'm not arguing for my parochial point of view. I'm not arguing for my budget. I'm arguing for the best answer to make this company successful. Then once a decision is made and you have those kinds of people, they are the right who's who by their very makeup are the ones who will unify behind a decision to make it work. So it's not that you have the wrong who's and then you manipulate them to be behind making things work. It's you get the right who's who just want to be part of something that will really win. And then because you started with the who's, not the why, the what, the how, the who's, then you've already set the preconditions for the unification, the commitment, the fanatic intensity, that ultimately turns the flywheel of results.
0: I didn't. I didn't expect actually, Jim, for us to be drawing from from history so much. But but actually, in in the book, you also talk about George Washington, yep. his incredible ability to uh, create a culture of open dialogue, uh, the self discipline of silence. Yes. As, as well, I mean that's a that's a biggie for in, in your work. That that re- restraint. To, to listen, because we're, we're letting go of the answers a lot, aren't we, when, when big decisions need to be made? We're, we're trying to, in your
1: words, not be the, the genius with a thousand helpers. I, I love to read voraciously, so I love to recommend Ron Chernow's uh, wonderful masterwork biography, Washington. He describes Washington's decision-making process and how, how Washington did practice this discipline of silence. And he would have, he would have uh, Hamilton and Jefferson, right, just you know, welcome to a cabinet meeting with the mic drop and the whole bit. But really, they would argue, they would debate, they would discuss, and Washington would listen and let the debate happen. And go back again to the Cuban Missile Crisis, the way Robert Kennedy writes about it in 13 Days. President Kennedy set up different groups that would argue and debate and sometimes he would just stay out of it because he was fearful that if he spoke too soon, people would naturally respond to what they think the leader wants. And what if he was wrong? Great leaders in history were already aware of bias. You think,
0: uh, you know, back to Churchill, the the cabinet that he put together was, was from such a variety of backgrounds uh, he was going into a storm day in and day in and day out, but that was for good for the good of the war effort. Uh, that's a
1: great recommendation. I have a feeling you're going to give me a shitload of books by the end of this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm still uh, I still believe in the idea of reading roughly a hundred books a year. Oh, that's just unfair, Jim. I might be t- favorite. <laughs>
0: oh, what a month. Else beside my bed, I get this huge pile that just keeps yeah. rising otherwise. You talk about authenticity, actually really? this living the, the, the vision as much as possible. And it really stopped me in my tracks. This particular phrase, what cause are you willing to sacrifice and suffer for when you must make decisions that cause pain for yourself and others to advance that cause what cause will infuse your life with meaning? I actually put the book down when I read it and put the kettle on just, just to spend 10 minutes just thinking about those, that question alone. Pretty powerful. Which business leader do you feel was successful in terms
1: of authenticity and finding their own cause? For years, I'd struggled with this question that people ask. You know, can you, can people become level five, right? And level five was something that came back from good to great, where you had these hierarchy of leadership capabilities. And, you know, level one is individual skills, level two, good team skills, level three, management skills, level four, leadership skills. And then there was this level five, which is the kind of humility and will uh, and uh, in this powerful blend. And the course, and then we found that the level fives are the ones who were able to take companies from good to great. So, so what is it that the, uh, how, do you, how do you evolve towards level five? And I think the answer really is in asking that question, what cause do you serve? And I think that is, you know, that's a very different question than what do you want to accomplish or where do you want your career to go or uh, how much money are you going to make? Any of the, you know, not that those are unimportant questions in life. But I think that's one of the things I've really learned from my West Point cadets and from my experience with that world is the ethic of service ultimately starts to grow to become something, whether it be a service to your, your people, service to your unit, service to the overall cause in which you're engaged. But what cause do you serve? And it's when you put yourself in service to a cause that is bigger than you are, but really in service to it. But what's interesting yeah. to me is how people can grow into that. For example, I think Steve Jobs absolutely grew into that uh, over the course of his life. And by the time he was done, he was in service to the cause of Apple and what it could do. I understand
0: and, you, you, you did actually cross paths with Steve Jobs. Yep. Is that yep. correct? And you actually did do some
1: some work with him at uh, A key crossroads in in his life as well. In his life, exactly. So there are actually a couple of crossroads. And I think it really illustrates uh, uh, the development of a person uh, towards true level five. So back in in 1988, I had just, Bill had gone to bat for me. uh, And we were working on, you know, starting to work on Beyond Entrepreneurship. and, And I was teaching my class and just starting to, you know, try to put this course together. And I was only 30 years old, so I didn't really know what I was doing. And I thought, yeah, I need to have somebody come into my, cl- somebody come into my class who uh, uh, kind of helped me lend perspective for how you take a, a startup and turn it into a great company, which is what I really wanted my students to do. I wanted them to have aspirations to do a lot more than just do a startup and flip it and make some money or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, I just picked up the phone out of the blue and I called Steve Jobs. I said hey, you don't know who I am I'm over here at Stanford I'm teaching this course I want my students to take you know startups and small businesses and turn them into great companies will you come down and spend some time with me and my students and Steve who in my experience was always very gracious uh, agreed and he shows up in this 1988 89 time frame I think it might have been I called him in 88 when he came in 89 I think and comes into my classroom, sits down in the front and just says, so what do you want to talk about? We had this like marvelous two-hour conversation (laughs) about life and leadership and building great companies and creativity and the whole bit. But I want you to notice something, the year, 1988, 89. Where was Steve Jobs in 88, 89? Was he He in between Apple? Was he, had he left? Totally, totally in the wilderness. He He had been booted. He said in the middle of the session, he made this little quip, Well, I got booted out of my last company, referring to Apple. And in 1985, of course, he'd lost this boardroom battle and lost his company. And he went off and he's doing this next company called Next, but Next isn't becoming the next big thing. And he was so in the wilderness, you know, that when there were this gathering of 500 leaders in Silicon Valley, uh, the most important technology leaders, he didn't get an invitation I mean, that, that's the wilderness. It's like Churchill in 1932, right at the end of William Manchester's Last Lion. Short volume one. Churchill, oh, he's finished. Mm-hmm. Right? Churchill, oh, he's finished. Steve Jobs, oh, he's finished. I didn't realize it was that pronounced. I, I was in a parking lot with a couple of other CEOs who were laughing about him.
0: Don't, okay. I mean, coming back to your, your, your point, the Stockdale paradox you know, don't write off the guy
1: that never gives up, right? Exactly. I mean, the unwavering faith. So, so Jobs, he still had this incredible love and passion for the original idea of bicycles for the mind. You give, you give a computer, you can take one computer a thousand times more powerful and give it to one person or make a computer one one thousandth as powerful and put it in the hands of a thousand creative people he would choose the second is the best way to change the world. Now, what's interesting is he'd been really humbled by this. I mean, he's decked. He's thrown out of his own company. He's in the wilderness. And, and what's his response to that? It's to grow. And when people read about the sort of immature entrepreneur and the immature entrepreneurial behavior of Steve Jobs in his like early 20s, and they think that that's what you should really be, they're kind of missing the point, which is that there was a Steve Jobs 1.0, and that's the one that got booted out of Apple. And there's a Steve Jobs 2.0, which is the one who came back in 97, when Apple was nearly dead, or certainly potentially becoming irrelevant. And it was the Steve Jobs 2.0. It's much less interesting, much more measured, much more mature, and humbled from this experience. And then when I uh, I got a call from from Steve in 2007 to talk about ultimately he wanted to put in place Apple University to make Apple have foundations for greatness long beyond him. And what was really clear as we as we talked and you just watch his life and his career by this point, his goal, the cause he served was not was something that would go far beyond his own lifetime. He wanted Apple to be the ultimate product and Apple to be a great company and to not be one of these entrepreneurs that demonstrates their genius because the company collapses after they leave. He wanted the exact opposite. He wanted Apple to be great even when he could be there no longer. And his, this notion of, I'm in service to the overall sort of ethos of what Apple can do for people, and Apple is a great company, and it isn't about me. That was the, when he, and he rose and rose and rose to that, and then Apple has gone on and done very well since then. The question, what cause do I serve as opposed to Um, you know, what do I just personally want to be or accomplish or whatever? Steve jobs went through that. And again, we come back to Churchill. Churchill did that, right? Churchill was a gigantic personality with a huge ego, but where did he channel it? As, as in that great podcast that you had with, uh, the person from the Churchill society, uh, Alan Packwood, I believe his name is. He talked about how in the end, Churchill's towering ambition was not just personal, there was this grand sense of England in the world. And, and, that, and the importance of, it's, it's not just that we need to survive, it's larger than that. And so there's even people with towering genius and egos, but when they channel it into the thing that's bigger than they are, that's the what cause do you serve that puts you to a different level. What, What? I mean, you've talked about bicycles for the mind, but what was
0: Steve Jobs 2.0, what was his cause, if you could put
1: it, distill it into a sentence, Jim? To build a great and enduring company that would be able to make insanely great products, bicycles for the mind, for generations. This is Devon Harris from the original Jamaica Bobsleigh team. You're listening to The Hottest Thing Not on Ice, the Workplace Evolution podcast.
0: Let's um, move on to the third style, which is focus. You're, you're asking leaders to ask, how am I going to spend my time rather than what am I going to do today? And, and, and this is something mm-hmm. I encourage my own coaches to, to do, to maintain a diary or a journal to, to capture their time, thoughts and, and experiences. Just to think about how am I spending it and, and spending my time? And am I prioritizing or, or protecting my, my priorities? Do you think the past great leaders or current great business leaders do master focus and, in, in this way in terms of uh, cleverly um, dividing up their time? And how does that help with performance?
1: So, um, so let me uh, uh, come at this maybe with some things that might even be really helpful to your, to your listeners. There's a, there, I think it's in Beyond Entrepreneurship, there's a line that people have picked up over the years, which is if you have more than three priorities, you don't have any. And, uh, and, I, and I actually come back to that a lot. So if you have more than three priorities, you have zero priorities. Uh, I'm just going to take it in a slightly different direction and share a few recipes for remaining focused and for thinking about your time. And maybe these will be helpful to some people. So number one, and something I learned from studying our, our leaders is that all of us have a to do list, but we should also have a stop doing list. And the stop doing list should be as robust as the to-do list. And when you sit down at the beginning of the year and you lay out your priorities for the year and you should have like three primary priorities, it should be like a balance sheet. The other side of the balance sheet has to be three things you're going to stop. Every year, three priorities to do, three things to stop. Three priorities to do, three things to stop. Three priorities to do, three things to stop. I mean, just, it's just like a balance sheet. Assets and liabilities have to match. To do and stop doing have to match.
0: Come on then, Jim, spill the beans. What are your stop doing yearlies? What are the ones that stand out for you personally?
1: Ah, one of my stop doings is to stop sending any email when I'm agitated. <laughs> No, I'm I'm serious about that. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, uh, I mean... so so something hits you and you're you're aggravated, you're irritated, you're you're anxious, you're tired, you're whatever. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't do the people around you any good. And uh, Lincoln had this thing, you know, uh, that where he would write these letters when he would be so agitated about something that happened in the Civil War, like after the battle of Gettysburg, when he was just distressed that, uh, that, that they'd let Lee escape after Gettysburg, and he writes this letter, but he writes at the bottom of it, never signed, never sent, right? And he put it in a drawer. And so we have this, You know, this, I, I, I find it's very helpful to separate the need to vent yes. from yes. the impulse to send. It's an old
0: phrase or an old model, the six second rule. You know, your you, your primitive brain fires when you see that email that agitates you, and yep. if you're not careful, you'll respond too quickly before the rest of your rational brain catches up. And I know you've been been learning a lot about neuropsychology. I have. Yes, doesn't mean I'm an
1: expert. I've just been learning. Yeah. So so let me let me share with you uh, one uh, leader who uh, I, I write about in Beyond Entrepreneurship uh, that that I really have been very impressed with the how she really became a truly great executive by being very, very clear about uh, what to do and what not to do. Her name is Ann Baker. And one of the things that, uh, that has really been beautiful about how Ann became such an incredible leader and led the company through some very difficult times to then incredible success uh, here in the United States in the mental health services business is that what Ann does is she goes back, right when she took over, she, she actually called up when we were working on Beyond Entrepreneurship, and she said, I've got my father's company. I want it to be a great company. And we sat down and we talked, and we talked about what was really, really important in the company. And she said, we have to change a lot of things. We're going to have to change our recipes. We're going to have to change where we put our focus and our resources. But I need, I need a guiding framework for how to do that. And, and so she sat down at the very early stages and she said, what I really want to be clear on are two things. I want to be very clear. What are the few values that are going to guide every single decision? And if something is contrary to or outside those values, we're not going to do them. And the second is a real deep sense as to what it is that my father was all about. And what she did was she had this insight that what, what her dad's company was ultimately all about, wasn't delivering a bunch of services. It was helping people with mental impairments realize their full potential. And so what Anna did really well as she began to navigate the company and she does to this day is she's constantly thinking about is everything I'm doing like there's all kinds of extraneous stuff and 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 stuff that could be coming in a request to sit on committees and all sorts of things because they're very successful at some point she goes back to a simple question how will this help people with mental impairments realize their full potentials? And if, if, if it's somehow off point and or if it's something that doesn't really ring true with their values, it's like, it's easy. It's on the not to do list. Yeah. And so by not that, not that, not that, therefore we can focus on this and, Anne, uh, over the course of those decades uh, became one of the most extraordinary uh, builders of a company that I've seen. And it's because she would always go back to ground zero Of things that were this guiding constellation from the very inception of when she became chief executive.
0: Many, many leaders that you've you've mentioned uh, that's come up in the research or that that you've met or worked with personally um, have that cause, have that authenticity, have that focus, uh, but they also have the the personal touch, the ability to be hands-on, uh, adding a personal touch, touch to their work, in a, uh, an element of their own personality in, in, in what they do. Uh, love the phrase: "If you define success by money, you always lose. The real scorecard is on how you build relationships and living
1: your core values." That's lovely. How did you pull that one out, Jim? Uh, well, but but here here's here's the thing about that uh, about that sentence. Um, it is the personal touch comes because of a very deep respect and love of your people. And you go back to Kant, right? And the categorical imperative and his theories of ethics. And and one of the things that's, that's deep in that tradition is this idea that it is immoral to view people as a means to an end, but instead to view people as ends in themselves. And I think that whether it be Ann Baker, we were talking about, whether it be um, uh, all the folks, that, you know, whether it be Bill Azir, Bill Azir and Peter Drucker invested in me, not because of what they were going to get from it, but because they were giving to it and i was an end in itself they just felt investing in me as a person and they didn't expect anything in in return and i think that notion of you know like mentorship people are always like a big part of this this book is about the power of a great mentor a great mentor is a great relationship, and Bill defined a great relationship in a wonderful way. He said Bill, "You value relationships. You believe that you have a choice in life. You can view life as a series of transactions, or you can view life as building relationships. But the only way to have a great life is to build relationships."
0: You know, it's funny how you say, oh, I was, I got to 30, and I didn't, I, I really didn't know anything." It really makes me laugh because at 30 you think you're just about to get it, then you get to 40 and you realize I I really didn't know enough. But but uh, what's in it for the mentor? What is in it for the mentor? With regards to that, you know, the scorecard is on how you build relationships and live in your core values. Yeah. What is in
1: for the mentor? Um so I, I uh I asked Bill once. I said, I said, Bill, what do you think makes a great relationship? And he said, Well, if you ask each person in the relationship independently who benefits more from the relationship, they would each independently say, I do. And I said, well, isn't that a little bit selfish? He said, no. Um, Let me ask you, Jim, who do you think benefits more from our relationship? I said, I do, Bill, hands down. And Bill said, isn't that wonderful? Because I feel that I benefit more from our relationship you know, the youth and energy that you bring and the pushing and the, and always kind of asking questions and, and kind of keeping me young because you're in a different generation and, uh, and, and, and the love that we have for each other. Yeah. I, I think I benefit. And so, and he said, and that's the beauty of it is that a relationship is built because it's what you are giving to it, not what you are taking from it. And Bill, and so what does a mentor, um, I think all of us have a parenting instinct or maybe not all of us, but, and maybe it's hardwired. I don't know. Maybe it's evolutionary. I don't know. But the notion of placing bets on young people and then watching them. Yes. Yeah. There's joy from that. It's joyful to see that. It is. And even if it will go on long, long past you. So when Bill died in 2004, when Bill, when my father died, I, I cried for, what I never had. And when Bill died, I cried for what I'd lost. And I went to the memorial service in Stanford's chapel and you got a picture there's like, I don't know, something like a thousand people in there. And all of a sudden I had this image, all these people who had been touched by Bill because I wasn't the only person he mentored that he touched. And all of a sudden I had this image in my head that There were all every one of those people was like a vector going out in time and that because Bill had had altered the trajectory of those vectors, some of them when they were quite young, even just a little bit. By the time they got out in their life that shift in that vector was a huge sweep and then you could picture a 1000 of those vectors having been altered by Bill Lazier, one person. And then now picture those thousand vectors impacting on each one, maybe another hundred, ten, hundred or thousand vectors. And you wanna talk about what is a life? What is a life well led? What does it add up to? If you measure your success by money, you always lose. The multiplicative, multi-generational vector effect—that's a great life.
0: I think you've captured beautifully the the importance of not a transactional relationship in in mentoring or or leader to follower, or however you want to term it. But uh, I don't think these are your words; these are my words. But a transformational—the importance of a transformational relationship by having that personal personal touch. I did want to kind of shift things a little bit, though. What did interest me was your, your research into to IBM, the individual that inherited IBM from, from his father, Thomas J. Watson, Jr. Yep. Uh, and he talked about um, how, yes, you know, management by walking around being important, but he also had that door is always open policy that, that, that we heard so much about. Mm-hmm and with the, there's a right clearly a rise in remote working mm. um, doing so much more on online how do leaders maintain that personal touch and contact well with their employees but also mm. not create a, a rod for their own back where they're creating a, a, a dependency type relationship with uh, with their, their team or, or their followers. So,
1: um, yeah, I don't know if there is a, uh, uh, an equivalent version now of management by zooming around, but um, uh, I, yeah. I, I, when you think about it, right, because the whole idea, and, and it goes back to uh, what really was a, a seminal breakthrough book in Search of Excellence, which Tom and Bob uh, wrote. And And, of course, one of their things was management by walking around. But I think and I think that what they were really getting at is this notion of being really tactile, really being hands on people confuse I, I think what you want to do is be micro aware you want to be aware of everything, which is really different than micromanaging, like you really have a tactile feel for everything, and management by walking around is just kind of walking and so say, you know you get a sense for the vibe, the feel you know' it's a, it 's a, it's yeah. tactile right it 's human i 'd like to give credit to. The way my uh, my chief of staff Dave, who you met earlier, is doing this with our team, and I and I think it's really a great sort of specific of how it can be done. We've always had a mechanism that we call 1010, and 1010 is every day uh, at 10 a.m. and 10 minutes, not 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 10 minutes and five seconds. Uh, It's like 1010000, right? So this whether in person or whatever. And every day in 1010, every member of the team comes with uh, uh, their list of their top five priorities for the day, their top three priorities for the week, and their kind of big project march. And they review with the rest of the team what they're working on, which gives a chance for people to, oh, hey, I can help you with that. Or, gosh, it's interesting that that's happening for Dave to hear what's going on. But – What's happened is so we've had the 1010 in place and everybody should have some kind of a 1010 thing. it's kind of like uh, you know there would be like the pre when you were doing the red arrows right the, the guy was talking about how the constant pre uh, mission meetings right that are constantly going on and then the AARs after you need those sorts of of things within to co- stimulate constant communication but what what Dave's done a really good job of is to Make sure that that 10 10 time is a time that's also to, if you will, have that tactile feel. Like, what's the vibe? How are people feeling? Uh, what's also in the air? Not just the 5 3, you know, 5 3, you know, big project, but also sensing. And because it's every single day, it's not like I got something that's kind of going awry, we need to have a meeting. It's every single day. It's like you wake up in the morning and you take your pulse. You can do that on Zoom. You can do that. The key is what's your way of really sensing the pulse, right? What's your 10-10? This is David Coulthard on the Workplace Evolution Podcast, the podcast that gets the listener up to speed on leadership and
0: management. Michael, do you really want me to say that? We'll move on to hard and soft Um, people's skills which relates nicely to that to that personal touch and it is kind of elevating high standards as a leader um, trying to drive those standards up as as a leader but also the flip side of that you've suggested in the book is is always developing others capability at the same at the same time at the heart of every leadership program that I've run we always start with raising levels of, of self-awareness and understanding the the, the topic of, of self-awareness. Is that, I'm just interested, is that the same for you? And how do you articulate the importance of, of self-awareness as a starting point in leadership?
1: When, when we look at the question of having the right people in key seats, which is a theme that's run through all of our work since Good to Great, and now I've integrated back into Beyond Entrepreneurship, you have to ask yourself about well, how do you know if you have the right person in the key seat? And how do you have confidence that somebody's going to maybe grow into an A performer in that seat when they're not yet there and they need to get there? And there's a thing we talk about called the window in the mirror. And it's a level five trait. Um, and what, what level five leaders are really good at doing is when things go uh, well, they're really good at pointing out the window and being very aware of the factors that weren't them that made it go well. And giving credit to other people and giving credit to good luck when it happened, good giving credit to good tailwinds when they come. That's a form of awareness of, hey, this wasn't all me. And really doing that. And uh, and at the same time, when things go very badly, the awareness to stand in front of the mirror, look in the mirror, and say, you know, I'm responsible for this. And even though there may have been a lot of factors out of my control, I have to really be reflective about what. What what do I learn from this? How do I grow from this? How did I learn? How, what mistakes did I make? How could I have thought about this different in the future? And so that that's a level five approach to the window in the mirror. The unaware approach, the the non level five way, is that when things uh, go well, you stand in front of the mirror and you say, "I did this, right? Look at me in the mirror. Boy, am I good, right?" Taking as much credit as possible, which is actually unaware because if you have a great team, sure, you played a pretty critical role, but it's not all you. The other is when things go badly, the tendency to point out the window without much reflection about how you could have been ahead of things, prepared for things, Uh, made better decisions, whatever, you're pointing out the window to factors, oh, it was the economy, it was the tailwinds, it was COVID, it was blah, 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 as opposed to saying, you know, I'm responsible still in the end and I need to grow from this. And what that means is this. The people who are always pointing out the window when things go badly, rather than looking in the mirror, Mm -hmm. cannot grow.
0: There's something about ownership as, as well there, isn't there, Jim? If you How do you mean
1: ownership? That's an interesting phrase.
0: It's a bit like you can have, you could have your self-awareness raised, Jim. I could do a 360 with you. I could do a psychometric. But you have to act on that self-awareness. It's not enough for it to be interesting or insightful. You have to do something with it. So that, that's what I'm talking about uh, in terms of ownership, I, I feel.
1: Yeah. So I think that, again, we go back to the conversation earlier about Steve Jobs 1.0 to 2.0. I think that one of the reasons that Steve was able to make that journey is because he was actually very, very self-aware of what he needed to learn and how he needed to grow. And so when he bought Pixar, uh, he, he learned from Ed Catmull. Who book Creativity, Inc., I also warmly recommend to people. But Ed Catmull created a culture of genius as opposed to being a genius. And what uh, Jobs did was he, he, in a sense, almost Catmull was like his sensei. And to say, I need to learn, I need to, I need to know how to not be a genius, but how to create a culture of genius. And he learned, but he was self-aware enough to be able to grow. I also think that, let me just talk about this sense of awareness. Let's come back to the um, Red Arrows for a moment, because, again, a, a, one of your shows I really enjoyed so much. And he talks in there about the the after-action review. And one of the things I learned from my friends in the military when I went off to, West, to serve in the chair for study of leadership at West Point is the military is really, really good at its best, especially like special operations and so forth, at the after-action review. And we imported it into our little system here. But here's the, here's the key. So it's not only just individual awareness of a leader, but you're in a system. You're in a unit or you're in a group, right? And if, if after every action, you have an after-action review. And the rule in the after-action review is you have to do exactly what he said, but you have to ask, what did we learn from what did not go well? What did we learn from what went well? And what other key learnings can we take from this? And then there's a critical, so first of all, now you're going to group awareness, right? It's not only just individual awareness, it's group awareness. And, and it's not just this went well, that didn't go well. It's this is what we learn from what went well. This is what we learned from what didn't go well. And then integrating that in, in a systematic way, back into your training. So that it becomes a replicable process. And so that notion, that's something that everyone running any team should be doing after action reviews, where it's, it's a systematic process, it's replicated over and over again, and it's circled back into the overall awareness and understanding of the team, which then accelerates momentum over time. So you have individual awareness, but you also have our group awareness, it's not it's not an individual
0: self-awareness it's it's the the collective yes. uh, organization self-awareness which is a whole huge debate about leadership as to you know getting away from this notion of the, the one single messiah leader that will come along and save us all collective leadership its strength comes from from self-awareness individual action and team action and just to 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 play with that a bit a bit further my experiences that some leaders spend more time focusing focusing on an individual's poor performance than they do focusing on getting the best out of their high performing employees what is it that companies do to deal with poor performance and i guess to throw in a curveball as well jim there's a really sensitive and volatile time at the moment with with pandemics like how do you also deal with poor performance in such a sensitive time at the moment?
1: So uh, I, I would offer two things on this. You know, the, the, the first is that you're, we're talking really about time management. If you're leading a team or you're leading a company, you should be spending about 50% of your time or more just on people decisions and people questions and training of people, right? All the other stuff doesn't matter if you don't get that right. So when you clock your time and you measure your time, uh, unless you're a creative person like me, where my time goes into creative work for the most part, but if you're actually like your job is leading, your job, and that happens not to be mine, but there are lots of people it is, 50% or more should be on people stuff. And part of that people stuff is tracking systematically, what are my key seats? And do I have the right people in those key seats? And I have to get to above 90% of my key seats filled with the right people. However I get there, I have to get there. Now I might get there by developing people. I might get there by replacing people. And we system, I went back and looked at all the greatest executives uh, in my research. And I asked the question, how do they get people to become, how do they get to that 90%? How do they get to right people in key seats? Do they tend to have a tilt an orientation to developing people? into those you know, from l- one level of performance to another and they're very developmental leaders and they develop their people into that? Or are they more the decide to act, to replace? That's their, their orientation. And it actually turns out that it's about a 50-50 split. So if you take two truly great chief executives, uh, Anne Mulcahy and Katherine Green, two of the greatest chief executives in the last 50 or 60 years, Anne Mulcahy who saved Xerox, Uh, was a consummate tilt towards developed people. If she had somebody that wasn't quite making it in a key seat, her tendency would be to double down and really help that person become that. Like, that's her orientation. And Catherine Graham, when she took over the Washington Post, uh, her family's company, in the wake of a a tragedy of her husband committing suicide, her approach was much different. Her approach was, for my really, really key seats, I can't wait. I have to replace them if they're not making it. And she would be more, she was more tilt replace. And the point is they are both great executives. They were both getting to the right people in key seats, but one took a development approach and the other took a replace approach. And it actually turns out that we could go through a long list of leaders and I can tell you these were tilt replace, and these were tilt developed. So you can be either. The key is that um, as you're looking at this question, there's two things I'd ask you to think about. The first is, if somebody's struggling in a key seat, really struggle with the question, do you have a seat problem or do you have a bus problem? Right? Because it could be that you have the right person on the bus. They're really great, but man, you got them in the wrong seat. And that's not in your interest or their interest, right? So that that's one. The second question is, if, you, if you're reasonably confident that it's not a seat bus question. Uh, has your confidence in that person gone up or down in the last year? Yeah, we all have good days and bad days. But hopefully over the course of a year their confidence grows. And and so, you know, a year you ask yourself, it's like that classic question, am I better off than I was, you know, X number of years ago? Do you have more confidence in this person than you did a year ago? Mm-hmm. That's a great litmus test question you
0: know it's it's it there's a huge amount of redundancies taking place, and I'm not going to make light of that in any way shape shape or form um but you know it can be it can be a significant moment for for development and and choices um as well do you feel it's like the the right and honest thing thing to do you know if if you can't find uh, a, a role for someone to re, re, you know to redeploy them somewhere else and you just can't find find a fit for them, and you've tried all the development, it is essentially the, the last resort and the right thing to do, is it not?
1: There's a there's a line that comes from good to great that uh, I always encourage people to embrace, which is to be rigorous, not ruthless, when it comes to people decisions. Uh, for the sake of, bi- if you want to build a great company, if you want to build a great team, for your key seats, doesn't necessarily mean every seat on the bus, but for your absolute key seats, You need to have the discipline to get the right people in those key seats. I go back to what Anne Mulcahy said, when she said, you know, these are really difficult decisions, came to some of the people decisions and things she had to do to save Xerox. She said, and I never want them to be easy because we're talking about people. And and even though you're rigorous about having the right people, you also go back to the idea that people are not expendable commodities. They are people.
0: You just took me back to a moment. Somewhere in your research, you you mentioned a leader where uh, everything's pointing to decision A, and it's almost too easy. And this particular leader decides, do you know what? That decision's too easy. Let's actually step back and and come back to it and and make it harder.
1: Well, yeah, so there's actually a a wonderful story that Peter Drucker shares about Alfred Sloan. And, uh, And there's this wonderful moment where Sloan says, uh, I take it we're all in agreement with this decision. And everybody nods in assent. And then he says, then I suggest we postpone this decision until we (laughs) generate some disagreement so that we might know what the decision is all about. (laughs) Hey, gang, this is
0: Mr. Motivator on the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Now, listen, get up off that chair and sort that belly out. I said
1: exercise, not extra fries.
0: You hear me? Say yeah thank you for that well let, let's let's move on we 're on to the, one of the promote, penultimate styles now, which is ever forward. The book stresses the importance of a leader never ceasing to become more effective, keeping yourself vibrant, optimistic stimulated uh, essentially uh, alive as a as a human being
1: it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing about just sort of Ever, ever, ever forward. Now, a current leader who I think is a fantastic example of ever forward, it would be Reed Hastings uh, of, of Netflix. Because what I think is really interesting about what Reed Hastings has done uh, is you just think about all the changes that have happened. He's remained very clear about where they play in the world and what they can be the best in the world at. But every time you turn around, Right. There's there's this sense of, OK, if you have 100 million subscribers or whatever, it's just like that's just another click. Where do we go forward next? How do we keep moving? Yeah. Uh, I think Jeff Bezos is another one of these. of It's just you're always on the balls of your feet. Right. The sense of like you know, we are you know there's never a done. There's never a sense of uh, it's over everything, everything. I'm always struck by this. And think about this, Bezos likes to come back to the idea of reminding people as successful as Amazon has been, it still only has 1% of the retailing market. Okay.
0: That's, that's,
1: still, that's still huge. But, yeah, that's, yeah. Like, that's like, that's like, like we're on the balls of our feet. We have so much more to do. It, it that sense of momentum of moving, of always moving forward. And, and I, uh, I think about my friend, George Apollo Lehman, who, who we write about in there. He's always like, bring in the young people, the great young people who will make you be on the balls of your feet, because you're just trying to keep up, right? That flavor, I think, is just, and it's also light. You might as well just keep going until you're out of breath.
0: Well, that's interesting. You're talking about um, keeping vibrant, you know, through your own means, but actually through the talent that that you, that that comes through, which does link in nicely to the last leadership style around communication. Mm. And, in this new new era of artificial intelligence, we've got the you know ask Siri you know box in in every room in the house, and we can we can ask a question and get a, a, an immediate answer. It seems yes, leaders, it's critical for them to provide vision, strategy, clear clear direction, but it's also the ability to ask the big questions to ensure that the that the company is heading in the right direction. Are there companies that stand out for you that have, that have asked the big questions or are asking them now that you feel will take them to, you know, the next level from from the 1% to whatever Netflix are aiming
1: for? The person that comes to mind for me as a great model of that uh, is actually... Uh, somebody that I think everybody in business could learn from about always asking the next big question to, to maintain momentum. But she does not come from the traditional business world. I was asked uh, for my pick of the entrepreneur of the decade back about 10 years ago, and I chose Wendy Kopp, the founder of Teach for America and now Teach for um, All, which is yeah. you know, about, about getting young people involved in education to help the whole education Uber will go. And what's, what's beautiful about how Wendy keeps going forward, and I, I think that this just like, you know, talk about the ultimate entrepreneurial enterprise. Okay, great. Oh, it's wonderful. You're going to take over e-commerce or you're going to uh, you know, bring us new technology or we're going to bring artificial intelligence into our houses or we're going to, whatever, all, those are all wonderful things. But think about this. Think about the idea, the basic thing that she set out with now almost three plus decades ago. A very simple idea that all children everywhere, I mean, every corner of every village and every town and every country, everywhere in the world, everywhere, all children, without exception, all children deserve a shot at a solid starting life education, right? So that by the time you're entering early adulthood, you've got those fundamental foundations. And here she is, she's founds Teach for America. She she grows it out in in the United States. And then at some point, what does she do about like Ever Forward? It's a big world. I think we'll do Teach for All. So now we got to start thinking about Asia and we got to start thinking about Europe. And we got to start thinking about South America where the education systems are different, but the vision is the same. All children think. So we talked earlier about the Stockdale Paradox, about this unwavering faith that we can and prevail in some grand way, but it's defining what we mean to prevail. Prevail is, is, it's not sort of, there is a certain aspect of thinking what if, but it's almost more of like an imperative. It is unconscionable that we have so many children who don't get a great shot in life because they don't get a great education. So it isn't kind of a dreamy sense of what if, it's, it's a we must. The brutal fact is too many kids are left behind. Based upon where they happen to be born. That's a brutal fact. The brutal fact is talent is evenly distributed. The brutal fact is the best thing we can do is harness human people. The fact is that we're doing a bad job of that systemically. Brutal fact, brutal fact, brutal fact. That's where the vision starts. Then the other side is therefore we will define prevail as all children everywhere. And we should settle for nothing less. Now, that is an idea of, it's not dreamy. It's very, and what's wonderful is Wendy's always learning. What do I need to learn about how community leadership connects into this? What do I need to learn about how it's overall, it's not just what happens in the classroom, it's the surrounding environment. I mean, all these things And each country is different. Wendy, unfortunately, only has one life. I wish she had 100 lives because she would never stop.
0: It sounds like what what you call is b hags or big huge b hags audacious yeah. goals. Yeah. Uh, is this the time for big hairy audacious goals to be mm-hmm. daring in the current pandemic redundancies, cutbacks, budgets tight, uncertainty in the future? What's your message to business leaders out there about placing big bets and taking on the the b hags?
1: Uh, I would like to. Really give great credit to a colleague of mine, Morton Hansen. And we worked together on a book called Great by Choice, where we asked the question uh, with, with real rigor, uh, which is why do some companies and leaders prevail in the face of uncertainty and chaos, while others uh, underperform or maybe uh, don't even survive? And, and Morton and I worked together for nine years on this. And from that, uh, we actually ended up with uh, some very useful direct guidance uh, for people on how to prevail in this environment. So first of all, there's a, it's a genius of the end, right? It's not a question of place big bets or just protect yourself or take risks or stay safe, right? It's finding the genius of the end. It's not a question of, 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 of really trying to help the economy work or deal with COVID. We, we have to find the genius of the end right? It's all about the genius of the end. And 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 that one of the things we found is that there's this beautiful genius of the end of two principles that go together. One is the principle of uh, fire bullets, then cannonballs. And the other principle is practice productive paranoia, so that you, you lead above the death one. Now, the fire bullets, then cannonballs, it, it works like this. And this is absolutely essential, because it's the way that you both place big bets and bound your risk. Imagine you have a certain amount of gunpowder and you have a ship bearing down on you, big threat. And one approach to that is I'm going to take all my gunpowder, put it in a big cannonball and I'm going to fire it at that ship. You fire the big cannonball and it misses. And you turn and you look and you're out of gunpowder and here comes the ship and you're in trouble. But what if instead you, you fired very carefully selected shots with great discipline, sense of urgency, fire 30 degrees off, you missed, fire 20 degrees off, you missed, fire, ping, you hear the side of the ship. And then you take your gunpowder and you put it in a really big cannonball and you fire on the calibrated line of sight. Now, what have you just done in that situation? You've bounded your risk by not placing big bets until you have calibration. That's the point of the bullets, is to figure out what will work, find out what does deserve calibration. But once you have calibration, then you pack your gunpowder into a cannonball and you have to have the guts to fire the cannonball. Yeah. And what we found is that the leaders who do really well in these environments, they fire bullets, then fire cannonballs. So that you both found your risk with calibration and advance with big calibrated bet cannonballs. If you never place a big bet, you never do something great. The other side is productive paranoia. And what Morton and I found in our research is that the entrepreneurial companies that did the best uh, in the most turbulent environments are hyper aware of the things that can kill them. And they understand that good luck cannot make you great, but bad luck can kill you. So you have to always have extra reserves and buffers and cash and be conservative on the side that if the worst happens, you don't get killed on the side of the mountain. So go back to Chris Bonington, right? So what was he talking about? Leading above you know, in the death zone. We write about David Brashears uh, in in this and how David Brashears was very clear he brought extra oxygen canisters as a hedge against the idea that he may need extra canisters if things go bad on Everest. And so you have on the one hand, you don't wanna just sit in base camp for your whole life because then you'll never climb Everest. Yeah. Right? You don't want to sit there and say, well, it's safe down here, but then you'll never climb Everest. Right? On the other hand, you also need to be very prudent and, and also not go into the death zone when it's a storm and not have enough extra oxygen cancers. That's productive paranoia. And when things start to go squirrely to ask, something's wrong here, and if we got this wrong, we could die. So when you put those two together, bullets and cannonballs to advance yourself forward, Productive paranoia to keep yourself alive. And so in in, in Beyond Entrepreneurship, there's a little essay I wrote called The Essence of Strategy. And I think the essence of strategy comes down to three questions. One, where do you place your big bets? That's the bulletin cannibals. Two, how do you protect your flanks? That's productive paranoia. And third, how do you extend your victories? Which is a whole kind of separate topic. Cause a lot of companies jump to the next big thing rather than making the big thing they already have even bigger. Mm. I thought
0: it's just occurred to me Jim as, as well when you talk about having the guts, you know, big bets with, with calibration. Yep. You've got to have the conviction to take that forward. But actually if you've got the right people on the bus Around you, you've got that balance of productive paranoia uh, and and big bets as well. We're back to the we're back to the who, aren't we? Really? Yeah.
1: In one form or another, you're always back to the who, and uh, and I, you know, and again, that's that's why I started the whole thing of doing this re-release is uh, because I wanted to come back to the who of Bill. And I think that what you know, if, you know, if somebody were to set me down in a chair and, and they said, Jim, you have one minute left in your life. It's like, what's the most, one most important thing you've learned that you would wanna make sure that you pass along to us if, you, if we didn't have it? I would say it's always a who thing. Life is about people. It's about relationships. It's about people you love. And that if you reframe everything in life, there's lots of what's to worry about, lots of why's, lots of how's. But if you reframe everything in life around who, who do you allow to mentor you? Not what career should you have? Who are the people you wanna work with? Who are the people you wanna spend your life with? Who are the people you wanna go on a mountain with? Who are the people you wanna do amazing things with? If you can answer the who questions well, That is the starting point of everything. And if I had just one thing, if I could only pass along one thing, it would be, it's always people and who first. I
0: think that's a great moment by which to wrap up the conversation, Jim. I know that uh, you and I have discussed Peter Drucker in the past who kept writing well into his 90s do you think you've still got another 30 years in the tank looking forward? And is that how strong your cause
1: is today? So, um, uh, you know, I am definitely on the balls of, of my feet. And I'm actually starting a whole new research journey now. I, I feel that the, especially wrapping, going back and, 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 and wrapping up this early work that we did and bringing Bill to the world. It's kind of a completion of a long journey of 30 years of work into the question of what makes great companies tick. And I feel very, very proud of the work that not only just I did. I mean, there was Bill, there was Jerry Porras, there was Morton Hansen, and all the members of my research team uh, that contributed to these, uh, these ideas that came from all that work. And I feel that if I disappeared tomorrow, those ideas stand. And that's the beauty of working in ideas is ideas and words don't need you once they exist. And you can disappear. Uh, I don't intend to disappear from my work but I'm going in a whole new direction now and I mentioned earlier this theme of renewal and in many ways I actually think that even my great company's work is ultimately about deep renewal at some level and I'm moving on now and I'm in about five years into a research project that I hope Michael you and I can talk about when I'm done uh, yeah. but it's, it's the first one that I'm ever doing that's turning the lens of my research specifically at the individual. And, and I'm asking a very simple question, not, not individual like leaders or really. people, just people in their lives. And, and using the research methods, but to ask a simple question, why do some people remain so remarkably renewed over the entire course of a life, no matter what life throws at them? And I'm using a lot of the methodology sort of jury rigged over from my company research. It has to be adapted in different ways, but looking entire arcs of lives. And then and, and, and also with sets and you know my data sets and so forth. And I can't wait to share that with the world because uh, I think that's one of the great human questions that was teed up by John Gardner about 40, 50 years ago, which is this question of self-renewal. And the truth is, that one of the greatest costs to the world is the failure to self renew. So I'm going to engineer my own renewal by studying and writing about self renewal. And then if I get enough time, if I get enough time in my life, I'm only 62, then I wanna add the third piece, which is if you've got organizational renewal from this first 30 years of work, then you do individual renewal then I think there's the question of societal renewal. And uh, if I get enough time, maybe I can address that one too, before I run out of breath. Well, uh, we've
0: spoken about Sir Chris Bonington. I know you like you, you, your climbing in your spare time. And I, I'm not sure if the, this point that he, he shared with me in the podcast was actually on there, but I was asking him about, you know, how incredible it was to have climbed the Old Man of Hoy, which is a huge stack in Scotland. At age 80. <laughs> yeah, in, in his 80s. When talking to him about that, he said he knows that people, are yo- people that are young that think old, and he yeah. knows people that are old that think young. Yeah. And my impression of you is that you're very much in the latter. Uh, so keep going keep going with your work keep going strong and uh for all of those that are listening budding entrepreneurs who perhaps struggle to to switch off over christmas you'll be able to to buy the book this december published by uh, random house and of course find out more about jim at www.jimcollins.com and via twitter at level five leaders Jim, it's a it's a colossal amount of work that you've done. Uh, a huge amount of energy and drive has, has, has clearly gone into it. Um, I mean, no doubt that that, that Bill will be uh, looking down with a big thumbs up, probably having his his waffles and a, waffles a
1: big, <laughs> <laughs> with um, butter.
0: <laughs> I personally uh, look forward to to speaking to you, you know, well into your seventies, eighties, and nineties if if I'm around. Uh, Thank you so much, Jim, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and good luck in the future.
1: Well, very good. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I've enjoyed your questions and you've made me feel very enthusiastic about sharing this with people.
0: That was the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Many thanks to Management Today and Michael Page, part of the Page Group, for making this podcast possible. If you want to contact us with your feedback and ideas, Check out the podcast notes on how to get in touch.